Well, I'm a professional caregiver. My job is to take care of people, to provide them comfort in times of sorrow and grief, hope in times of despair, direction in the midst of uncertainty, and peace in times of distress. You don't pay me just to preach, but you also pay me to do those kinds of things as well. Unfortunately, sometimes it becomes less of a ministry and more of a job. I deal with a lot of needs, with a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Most of my phone calls aren't good news. They're bad news. Every once in a while, someone will call me and ask me to give praise for something good that's happened. But usually, it's a call asking me to pray for something that's bad. After a while, you learn to deal with the accumulation of people's needs, hurts, pain, and problems. I'm sure all of you doctors here this morning have learned to do much the same thing. Eventually, you learn to kind of insulate yourself. And if you're like me, you begin dealing more with the problem than you do with the person. For me, it involves acting more professionally than pastorally. That doesn't come by a conscious decision. But I'm aware that sometimes I protect myself from dealing with the real pain of other people. The events of the past week have given me a new sense of that awareness. You know, I've lived a blessed life. I rarely get sick. I take very little medicine. I enjoy lots of activities. I have a nice home. I have two successful sons. I have three cars for two people. I have some very good friends. I'm a pastor of a, a church where God is at work. It has some very smart and godly people in it. Quite honestly, I have people all over the state of Mississippi who, who love me, who respect me, who appreciate me. I have a faithful and committed wife. And it's easy for me to surround myself in the cocoon of those blessings and become rather desensitized to the real needs, the real pain, and the real problems of others. And to all that came the events of this past week. Early last Monday morning, I didn't know if my wife would live. I called Carrie at 4 o'clock in the morning. We were on the phone with him. I'm not sure if he heard this or not, but I was telling my wife, please don't die until the ambulance gets here. What I didn't know was she could hear me. So when I finally got to the emergency room in Jackson, our good friend Bebo Elkin came to, to visit us. and She said, Bebo, Bob told me not to die until the ambulance got there. And he looked at me and said, Swan, that wasn't one of your best pastoral moments. <laughs> but I was, I was waiting that morning by myself and my wife for the EMTs to arrive. 
I wondered what I would do if she did not live. And now I would handle it if she was permanently disabled. I was struck by real personal pain. This wasn't a professional moment. This was personal. It was real personal. This was not trying to reach out and give comfort to someone else. But it was a time of real personal distress. And I told you on Christmas morning in my sermon on that day that that week, that very week, I had uh, conducted the graveside service of the 10-day-old son of some very good friends, the grandson of one of my very best friends. Earlier in that week, before the baby had died, I was having breakfast with one of the men in our church. And I was sharing with him about the baby and how the baby had been born with such extreme difficulties and abnormalities and that the baby was not going to live. And the family was sitting there with the baby, spending all the time with him that they could. He looked at me and he said, he said, that's real life stuff. That's real life stuff. And it is. But aren't we thankful that the gospel applies to real life stuff? Aren't we thankful that the gospel applies to every situation of life? And that in this book we find what we need to face whatever it is God brings our way. And whatever circumstance or situation we may confront. You know, Carol and I have shed more than our share of tears over the last week. We take great comfort in the fact that the gospel applies the real life stuff. I've chosen to preach briefly this morning from this passage in Isaiah 55. We're not going to get through all of it, don't worry. I've chosen to use this passage this morning because I've used it time and time again in ministering to the needs of others. I read this passage, portions of it, the graveside of that 10-year-old baby, 10-day-old baby. I read the same passage to the same family two years earlier on Christmas Eve at the funeral of their 27-year-old daughter. I read it years before at the funeral of a woman in her early 50s who collapsed while having late afternoon coffee with her husband and did not live. I read this passage countless times at the funerals of others as I've sought to bring them comfort and them peace in times of real need. But you know, it's one thing to give it to someone else and tell them to live by it. It's another thing to take it yourself and live by it yourself. When I got back from the to the office Thursday morning, I spent some time with Gavin. And I was sharing with him some of what I was going through. And I told him, you know, sometimes you just have to live out your theology. It's one thing to teach it. It's another thing to live it. 
And that's what I want to share with you this morning from this passage in Isaiah 55, this rich text. Just two things, really. And the first is we find in this text a plea. It's an urgent plea. It's a call to come to the Lord, to seek Him, to turn to Him. Listen again what Isaiah says in verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, for he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now some people find an inconsistency in what the Bible teaches about the sovereignty of God in salvation and the responsibility of man to believe. They can't put the two together, how it can be that God is sovereign over all of life, including our salvation, and yet we are urged in passages like this to turn to the Lord, to seek Him, to call upon Him for salvation. If it is true, they say, that God really has chosen a people for Himself before the foundation of the world. And if it is true that God sent His Son to save those people from their sins. And if it is true that the Holy Spirit is now irresistibly drawing those people to faith and to salvation, why are there these urgent pleas to call upon the Lord to turn to Him and to trust in Him? And they say, well, if there are these urgent pleas to come to God, how can it be that God really is sovereign in salvation? That inconsistency is not God-made. It's man-made. There is no inconsistency with God and there is no inconsistency in His Word. And the Bible clearly teaches both that God really is sovereign in salvation. It is something He planned, something He accomplished, something He applies. And yet God calls on all of us urgently to repent, to believe, to turn, to trust, and to call upon Him. Not only that, the Bible says that those who do not will spend an eternity separated from Him in hell. The fact that God is sovereign in salvation does not negate the responsibility laid upon sinful people to come to Him, to call upon Him, to trust in Him. Now what we know is those who do are those upon whom the Holy Spirit has worked and drawn to Himself, And so there's this urgent plea here. And it's the same plea found throughout the Word of God. Do not neglect it. Realize that today is the day of salvation. And that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have not done that this morning, I urge you, I plead with you, come to Jesus. Give your heart to Him. Believe in Him. Trust 
on him. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Because there is a wonderful promise. And the promise is that he will have compassion on you. He will. If you do, he will. So there's this urgent plea. Second, Isaiah gives us a reason for this plea. And the reason is because God just doesn't do things the way we do them. Listen again to verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, our problem is that we're trying to understand an infinite God with finite minds. And that simply cannot be done. We cannot understand fully the ways of God because His ways aren't our ways. We can't fully understand the way God thinks because He doesn't think like we do. And that's many times where we encounter our theological problems. We try to make God act like us. We try to make God think like us. And yet He does things far differently than we would do them. He thinks in ways that we cannot even comprehend or understand. That's what it is, you see, to live by faith. To let God be God and to trust Him for His wisdom and His grace. Now, this chapter focuses upon the wonder of grace. And now the way God deals with sinful people is so different from the way you and I would do it, isn't it? We're people of merit, aren't we? We think people have to earn something, deserve it before they can have it. That's our way. That's not God's way. God's way is the way of grace. He gives it to us even though we don't deserve it. Even though we haven't earned it. And so therefore this urgent plea is there. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous his thoughts, and return to the Lord, for he will have compassion on him. Seek the Lord. Seek him while he may be found. It's another way of the Bible telling us, be ready. Be certain, certain, be sure. You know, our ways, our ways, and our thoughts are for people to live long, healthy lives. To live to a ripe old age. And then, when they're good and ready, pass from this life to the next. That's our way. That's not necessarily God's way. Sometimes we're left scratching our heads, aren't we? At God's ways. Sometimes we're left kind of bewildered by what God has done. 
Sometimes we don't have the answers to our questions because God's ways are so unfathomable and hard to understand. Now, I could not tell my friend two years ago why his 27-year-old daughter died. Nor could I tell him the week of Christmas why his 10-day-old grandson died. I could tell him part of it but not all of it. Because of what Isaiah says. Because his thoughts aren't my thoughts. And his ways aren't my ways. The same is true of what happened this week in our lives. I don't know it all. And I probably won't understand it all until we get to heaven and the All the pieces of the puzzle of my life are finally in place. But some of it I do understand. As I thought about what God has brought Carol and me through this week, there are some things I know and I believe. One is, this is of God. God caused it. And God did it. Bible is clear in teaching that nothing happens apart from the sovereign hand of God. He was not napping the night Carol had her spell. He had not turned his head. He wasn't busy doing something else. He wasn't faced with a situation he could not handle. No, God was there. And God caused it. Not only did He cause it, I know He caused it for our good. We love Romans 8.28, don't we? Which says that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love Him. That's what the Bible says. I've got to believe it. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. I know that includes the two of us because we love Him. I haven't heard Carol ever pray a prayer in which she does not say, Father, we love you. And I know that includes you. Because you love Him. That promise is to us to us as a family and to us as a church body because we love him. It's happened for your good too. Now I know it hadn't felt like it. It certainly hadn't felt like it to us. I'm sure it hadn't felt like it to you. You know, you tend to think in weeks like this, well, if this is for my good, I really don't want to experience anything that's for my bad. We have to cling to that promise. We have to believe it. We have to trust it. We have to live by it. We have to look for the good. So what is some of the good? What's the reason for this? I want to share with you some of this morning what I think. Now I just shared with you what I know. Because it came from the scriptures. I'm about to share with you now what I think. 
no small thing to me. This happened the morning of January 2nd. Essentially, the new year. Carol and I just had a wonderful holiday time. We'd take some time off. My mother had been to visit. Both my sons had been in and out. We'd had a weekend off. And life was good. The next morning, this hit. As I reflected on it this week, I believe that God is doing this in large part for me. To prepare me for some of what is coming over the next several months. I've committed myself to something that's as ambitious as I've committed myself to in some time. I want to continue preaching the series on the Holy Spirit. Really getting down to the nitty gritty of what it means to deal with the struggle between the flesh and the spirit, to walk in the spirit, to be led by the spirit, to worship in the spirit, and to manifest, in a real sense, the fruit of the spirit in church, in the body, and at home. I'm also going to be, along with Gavin, teaching a series on spiritual warfare. We're going to take the devil head on. We're going to see what the Bible says about the enemy and how we deal with him on a daily basis. And I'm going to be leading you through a series on Wednesday nights on marriage and family. Three areas. Important areas crucial areas. And I believe part of what has happened the last week is God redirecting me to make sure that I am really walking by the Spirit myself. That I am putting on daily His full armor for the spiritual battles I face and making sure my marriage is what it ought to be before I lead you down that path. The events of the past week have tested me in each of those three areas. I realized that at times, maybe even, to be honest, more often than not, I've been walking more in the flesh than in the spirit. I've loved the world and the things of the world sometimes more than I've loved God. Being faced with our own frailty and how fragile our lives are has helped me realize again that what matters is not things but it's Him. Not the experience of earthly pleasures, but the pleasure of enjoying God. I've also realized that there are
are times in my life when I am woefully unprepared for the spiritual battles and conflicts that I face. I am sometimes blissfully unaware of the spiritual realities around me. I do not understand that the evil one is like a prowling lion, roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And I've also realized the past week how much I have taken my wife for granted. How I've used her more than ministered to her. How I've been more of a taker than a giver in our relationship. My wife and I are very public people. We've lived in what's called the fishbowl for a long time. People watch us. They observe us. They listen to us. They critique us. They look to us as an example to follow. I realized this past week uh, what a miserable example I've been many times to the men of the church and being the husbands God's called them to be. I can assure you, my relationship with my wife will never be the same. And I realize that as I begin to lead you through this series on the intimate marriage, that I needed to change some things. Or some of what I would say to you and lead you through would be hypocritical. So I needed the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews tells us that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and chastens. I needed correction. To be pointed in a new direction in my life. Why God chose my wife to bring that about, I do not know. But I rest in what Isaiah says. That he doesn't do things the way I do them. He doesn't think the way I think. I tell people sometimes who are going through a hard time, you know, it's not always so much about you and what God is doing in your life it may be more about the life of someone else. You know, God is going to use your life in this time of difficulty and hardship to influence the life of someone else. What I've said to others is certainly true of me. Maybe God will use all of this in your lives as well. Isaiah does go on to say in the remaining part of the chapter that God accomplishes his purposes through his word. For the sake of time, we're not going there this morning, but I want you to understand that's where Isaiah goes. To say that God accomplishes all of his purposes, his ways, and his thoughts through the application of his word. What I want you to see this morning is that God accomplishes his purpose through the living word, through his son and our Savior. Jesus Christ. All the events of life, no matter what they are, whether they're happy times, good times, hard times, sorrowful times, worrisome times, troublesome times, all of them are designed to bring us here, to bring us to Jesus, to point us to Him, to build our faith and our trust in Him. 
to see if he really is our all in all. As we begin a new year together as a body of believers, as we seek to learn and apply the gospel to some very specific areas of life, as we try to follow God's leading and do His will and understand His ways in our lives, it's appropriate, I think, that we come together as a body of believers here to the Lord's table to commune with Him, to commune with each other, to have our souls encouraged, strengthened, and fed. We opened our service this morning by singing an ancient hymn by Bernard of Clairvaux. He included these words. We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. May God make it so in us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its power. And I pray that as we reflect upon this passage in Isaiah today, that it would be powerful in us. If there be any here this morning who have not called upon the name of the Savior, I pray that by your Spirit you would lead them to do that. And they would call out to you, cry out to you, and find the salvation that is freely offered in the gospel. And Father, as we all struggle in our lives with difficult things, hard things, help us to see that we're to trust you and that everything you do in our lives ultimately is for our good. And so encourage us with that and use it all to point us to Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. I would read again, uh, as is our custom from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which are the words of institution for the Lord's Supper before we come to the table. And Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, in, which, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to eat of the bread. We're going to drink of the cup. And as we do, we're going to remember the Lord's death, Paul says. Because it is the Lord's death alone, this death of Jesus, that is our only hope of salvation. Let me say again, just in case you missed it a moment ago. Let me say it more directly. The Lord spared my wife Monday morning. She is still alive. There'll come a day when she isn't. There'll come a day when I'm not. Folks, we're going to die. 
We're going to die. Our bodies wear out. And we're going to die. And at that point, the only thing in your life that will matter is this. The only thing that will matter is Jesus. The only thing that will determine your eternal destiny is what is represented on this table this morning before you. And that is the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus given as a sacrifice for your sin. And so I invite you this morning, if you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, if you are seeking in your heart to live a life that pleases and honors Him, if you are in good standing in any evangelical church, this table is for you. This isn't a a North Point table. It's not a Presbyterian table. This is Jesus' table. And the elements on this table represent His finished work on the cross to pay the price you could not pay. And so, I want you to partake and to partake with joy and gladness what Christ really is, our Savior. And as we prepare, we're going to sing again verses 1 and 2 of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and As we sing it, the elders will prepare the table for us and then we're going to proceed. Stand together. Let's sing verses 1 and 2 when I survey the wondrous cross. Father, again, we're so thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your Son. And you sent Him to be our Savior. And you sent Him because of your great love for us. Because you love the world. That you sent your Son to save us from the world. And so I pray, O Father, now this morning that you would use these elements to minister to our hearts. Father, we know that this bread and this juice do not change. They don't become the body and the blood of Jesus. But we know they feed our souls. That symbolically, the grace of the Lord Jesus 
is represented here. By your Spirit, we feast upon Him. We are thirsty for Jesus. We're hungry for your grace. Feed us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There is...